All right, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead, get them out. We're in Matthew chapter 6. Before we dig in, I just want to ask you a question that I've had to wrestle with over the last few weeks. How many of you have ever struggled with getting your priorities out of line? Raise of hands if you're comfortable with that. We all have, right? It's really easy to do. It's easy to trade in what's most important for what's most urgent. I was sitting on my porch a couple weeks ago, talking to a couple guys uh, that are student leaders, and just this idea of knowing what we should do and then trading it in for what we really want to do. It's like knowing the right answer and knowing what you should do is not good enough because your desires can totally take over. And so I think about myself, one of my greatest fears as a former wrestler is that I will become severely obese. A lot of my wrestling friends have, and that's not a joke, right? They've just gained a ton of weight because their metabolism is shot. And so I'll say, man, I really don't want to get severely obese, which means here's what I need to do. I need to keep an eye on what I eat. I need to work out. But what happens when my alarm goes off at 5 a.m.? Right? It's easy to just be like, snooze, right? And then it goes off again at like 5.09. I don't know why iPhone does that, but it's like snooze, snooze, snooze. And I skip a workout. Or I'm driving by Quickstar, best gas station of all time. And I'm like, all right, I'm just getting gas. Oh, but wait, I need two chicken sandwiches for 3.33, right? Um, it's easy to just lose sight of what you know you should do for what you want in the moment, Right? few gals last week is like, oh, you know you got class early Friday morning, but you're jamming to T-Swift until 1 a.m., right? It's like, class Friday morning, that can wait. Uh, no, maybe not. So you might be asking, how does this relate to our faith? And quite simply, it's not hard to relate to. It's easy to trade in what's most important for what's most urgent. We talk about this idea of faith or God, or heaven, or eternity, and these are all huge concepts that we're all like, yes, that should matter. I should care about that. I want that. And you live in a material world where it's not just abstract. There's things that you can see, feel, and touch, and it's easy to trade in the abstract eternal things for the temporary worldly things. Am I right? Like for us to want or worry about earthly things more than we care or are concerned about spiritual things. How much money we have, or in the sake of college students, how much money you don't have, right? What possessions you have or what possessions you don't have but you really want. And even though you might not think of it directly in terms of your money or your possessions, thinking about is my GPA good enough? Am I getting into grad school? What are my internship opportunities? How am I building my resume? Because here's what you actually want. You want a job that can pay you money so that you can obtain a certain status or way of life, right? We just get swept up in this, and it is a huge problem, a huge problem. A few statistics for you. In America alone, there is $1.03 trillion in credit card debt. That is insane. Like, talk about abstract and ethereal. We do not have this concept of what $1 trillion looks like. We've taken that on in credit card debt. How about this? 90% of the world's 
self-storage facilities are located in the United States alone. A $40 billion industry. So it's like, we're racking up debt, we're storing a bunch of stuff that we don't even need, and oh, by the way, despite all of the privilege that America has, we are one of the most stressed and anxious countries in the world. Do you think there's a correlation? There is. There is. One in three American adults would say that they have some form of anxiety disorder. One in three. And I know that statistic is actually much higher amongst college students. And so, how do we not get swept up in that? Like, as Christians, how do we not get swept up into this constant life of wanting and worrying in a material world, right? How can we prioritize our faith in a material world. That's where we're going tonight. So Matthew 6, uh, Caleb opened us up in this chapter last week talking about how can we be faithful when it comes to these like spiritual rhythms or the religious component of our life, when it comes to giving to the needy, praying, fasting. And there was reward language, right? Here's your reward if you just do it to be seen by other people. You get seen by other people. Congrats. Pat on your back. But if you're willing to do this in secret, here's who sees you. Maybe not the people around you, your, your friends, people on your campus, but here's who actually sees you, God. And he delights over you. That's your reward. So there's this call to this secret spirituality that prioritizes God seeing us over other people seeing us. And this week, Jesus is teaching us, again, on principles of faithfulness, but he gets into the everyday life. Everyday life in a material world that is marked by wealth and worry. You guys ready for this? Put your big boy and big girl pants on, all right? It's not going to feel good. We ready? Yep, all right. Matthew 6, verses are going to be on the screen. I'll read the first section of our text. Jesus says to us tonight, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness! No one can serve two masters, for e e either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. <clears throat> so, this is confronting. And before we get in too much, I, I have to say, Jesus here is not teaching us that we must be poor, okay? There's kind of this like, poverty mindset that can actually be taken from this text that's like, oh, then we must all just like drop out of school and be poor. And I'm like, that's not what Jesus is saying, okay? What he is saying is it's okay to make a living, but it is not okay to fall in love with money, to fall in love with money. As a wise man by the name of Notorious B.I.G. once said, Mo money, mo problems. Mo money, mo problems. 
and he's not wrong, right? Jesus frequently taught about the threat that money poses to a human heart. And so we want to better understand this together. Jesus unpacks first this dichotomy between earthly treasures and heavenly treasures in verses 19 and 20, right? So lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, not treasures on earth. So he talks about treasures on earth. What do you think that means, right? To the original audience, they didn't have big banks. They didn't have iPhones or game systems. Here's what they had. They had clothing. Frequently, people in this day would, like, wear their bank account. They would, like, sew gold into their clothes because that was a status symbol. So they had clothing. They had grain. Grain frequently was a form of currency in their culture. And, of course, they had coins, right? Like, real currency that had real value, gold or silver, and they would frequently bury that or hide it somewhere in their house. And here's what Jesus says about those things. Clothes, you know what can happen? Moths can come in and eat that fabric right up. It's here and then it's gone. How about grain? Now, any of you that have an NIV translation, it doesn't say where moth and rust destroy. It's going to say where moth and vermin destroy. Because the, the word for that actually means eating or eating away, this corrosion mindset. And so there is this idea of your grain, you know what can happen to that? Vermin, rodents can come in and just eat it all away. Right in the country of India, there's this idea that almost 50% of their grain supply is eaten up by vermin. Very dangerous, right? And then thieves, what can they do? They can break in or dig through your house, and they can take your coinage. They can take your currency. Jesus is saying, don't live for stuff that won't last. Like, if that's what your hope is in, you are always going to be let down. I started to take inventory of my life. My first iPhone, guess what happened to it? Fell in the toilet. Fell in the toilet, right? And, of course, they come out with a new iPhone, like, every six weeks. So it's not going to last. Uh, my first pair of Oakley's sunglasses, what happened to them? They got stolen. They got stolen. I left them at a restaurant, walked out to my car, and came back, and they were already gone. Somebody just swiped them right up. Uh, my first car that I bought with my own money, actually not long ago, uh, I took it in, and not long ago, within the last several years, took it into the mechanic. He's like, yeah, there's metal shavings in the engine. I'm like, that's probably not good, right? He's like, yeah, your car's worth zero dollars. I'm like, sweet, here we go. And then Ellie and I bought our first house when we moved to Cedar Rapids. And the first 4th of July we had, the air conditioning went out. And it's like, seriously, it's 102 degrees outside, right? And so you understand what it's like to say, your material stuff isn't going to last. Whether it breaks, whether someone takes it, or whether it just becomes outdated and they come up with something new, your material possessions do not last especially in the grand scheme of eternity, you never see a hearse with a U-Haul behind it, right? Like, when you die, you're not taking your house with you. It's not going to last. And so the call is, store up your treasures in heaven. It's like, yeah, sign me up. What does that mean? You ever th think about that? It's like, store up your treasures. What, what does that even mean? Well, if you want to answer that, you have to ask the question, well, what does last? 
what will be in heaven? And I have a few answers for you. So the first is this. God is going to be in heaven, right? Isaiah 40, 28 says, Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. God will be in heaven. You know what else will be in heaven is God's word. God's word will be in heaven. Isaiah 40, verse 8, same chapter, says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You know what else will last forever? People. People. Revelation 7, this picture of heaven, right? John gets this vision from the Lord, kind of a peek behind the curtain of heaven, and here's what he sees. He says, Revelation 7, After this I looked, behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. People last forever. And so, when you take these three things and say, what does it look like to store up my treasure in heaven? Here's a few really simple things you can do. Invest in your relationship with God. Invest in your relationship with God. Have you ever thought about the crazy reality that, like, you can be called somebody that is God's own possession? And not just that he would call you his, but that you could call him yours. That is amazing. When I think about all of the things that we are so easily satisfied in, and then you zoom out and you're like, oh, yeah, but what about God? You know, the one who, like, created the galaxies? Have you ever considered what it might look like to be satisfied in him? To obey him? Because in obedience, Jesus says, here's what's true. My joy will be in you and your joy will be full, right? That's John 15. I love how David says in Psalm 8, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. He's out In the middle of nowhere, looking at the skies, he says, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? The God of the universe has not just spoken galaxies into existence. He knows every hair on your head, and he cares about you. Why would you not invest in that relationship? It's incredible. I mean, Paul understood this in Philippians 3. He said, Indeed, I count everything as a loss, Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish or dung. You're mature enough to figure out another translation. In order that I may gain Christ. Like, Paul abandoned all of his earthly pursuits because he said, I want to know the God of the universe through the person work of Jesus Christ. And whatever it costs me to obey him and follow him, He is worth it. Invest in your relationship with God. Secondly, spend time in God's word. Right? God's word lasts forever, so what are we doing today, tomorrow, next week, when it comes to investing in an eternal relationship, not just with God, but his word that he has spoken to us? I mean, how are you going to obey God if you don't even know what God asks you to do? 
Here's how David says it in Psalm 25. Make known to me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. He's saying, I want to know your word because that's how I know what you expect of me. That's how I know the path of flourishing you lead me on. And as we have titled our sermon series, A Life Worth Living, this is what makes life worth living when I live according to my design, to spend time in God's word. 2 Timothy 3.16 talks about the word of God saying this, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Are you serious? Right? This God has spoken to us, and he's given us everything we need. Literally, every single word we need to be considered complete, whole, holistic, and equipped for every good work, for every single thing that God would put in front of you. God has given you scripture to guide and lead you. Are you reading it? We need to spend time in God's word. And lastly, we need to invest in people. And when I say invest in people, I'm not just saying like being their friend. Like love them towards the person of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 has this incredible picture of ambassadors. All that ambassadors do is they speak on behalf of the king. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 says, the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, Jesus, and he died for all, that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, which means you no longer just look at people as like earthly beings. You look out at every single person you know, and you say, they will spend eternity somewhere. And they were created by God and for God, and God deserves their worship. And they will flourish if they would understand the person and work of Christ. And here's what God has invited you and me to do to be ambassadors, to speak on behalf of the king. 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are therefore ambassadors for Christ. This is so cool. God making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Like God could have chosen any way he wanted to like implore people or call people to repent and believe, and here's what he decided to do use you. What? Use me to like deliver this good news of the gospel so that people's eternities would be changed? Sign me up, right? The crazy reality that people will be in heaven because we were willing to step out of our comfort zone and speak the hard truth of the gospel to their life. Do you think that that would look like storing up treasure in heaven? Like, five million years from now, do you think that will matter? I do. Will my iPhone matter? No, it won't. Will my retirement matter? No, it won't. Will my third Chrysler town and country matter? No, it won't. I don't actually have three. I do have two, though, right? And so, 
The question is, what is your current heart posture? Does your heart posture more align with earthly treasure or heavenly treasure? Jesus tells us there's a way we can know. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You want to know where your heart is at? Look at what you treasure. Look at what you treasure. And he uses two different analogies in this text. The first is the eye. And here he's getting at, what are you focused on? What do you focus on? What do you spend the most time thinking about and hoping for? Is it your Amazon wish list? Or is it the amazing reality that God has given you all that you need in Christ? Is it about your bank account status? Or is it about lost people on your campus or on the ends of the earth? Like, what are you thinking about? Are you thinking about your future career and what your five-year plan is? Or are you thinking more frequently about heaven and what the next five million years will look like? What do you focus on? The eye. And then he uses strong language in verse 24. He talks about masters. So, what are you enslaved to? Ouch. Like, nobody is free. We're all enslaved to something. So, what can you not live without? Can you not live without your Starbucks coffee? Or can you not live without praying to God every day? Can you not live without shopping and scrolling, or can you not live without meditating on Scripture to keep you away from sin that so easily entangles us? What are you focused on, and then what are you enslaved to? Because this question of who is your master forces us to ask this question. Do you have money and possessions, or does your money and your possessions have you? That's humiliating, right? Because we can, we can choose who we're going to serve. You can either choose God or you can choose money, possessions. Like, which one are you going to choose? The obvious answer should be, I want to serve God, right? Number one, because he lasts. My possessions don't. Number two, because he's God, right? He's big and powerful and holy, and even to save my own humiliation, I'd rather say, at least I'm a slave to God and not my iPhone, right? Just to save my face. But it's not just that God lasts or that God is God, but because God is good, Salt Company. God is good. I mean, Jesus teaches in John 10, right? I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. You want the life worth living? It's found in Jesus. I already talked about his teaching in John 15. You want joy? Oh, Jesus has it for you. Abide in him. Follow him. Stay close to him. And here's what's true. His joy will be in you and your joy will be full. Psalm 16 talks about, man, you want pleasure? At God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. You want to be satisfied. There is no greater way than to be satisfied in the person and work of Jesus Christ. To be satisfied in God himself. And every single created thing is simply a shadow, or you could say an arrow, pointing us to our desperate need for God. There's a guy by the name of Blaise Pascal who is long gone, and he, he said this quote. Maybe you've heard it before. 
There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only the God, the creator, made known through Jesus Christ. You will always be dissatisfied. You will always want more unless you are satisfied in God. In Colossians 1.16 is a sweet, sweet passage where Paul says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. That includes you. You were created by God, you were created through God, and you were created for God, which means if you are trying to find satisfaction elsewhere, it's not going to work. But if you seek satisfaction in God, you will find it. You will be satisfied. And when you treasure God, here's what's true. We have to keep reading. Verse 25, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. All right, I understand anxiety is a huge issue today. Already alluded to that in the introduction. Specifically amongst your generation, anxiety rates are through the roof. And here's what I'm not here to be tonight. I'm not a doctor, okay? I'm not here to give medical advice. I'm not here to talk about diagnosis or medicine. If you've received a diagnosis or, or a prescription, I'm saying trust your doctor, okay? But as not a doctor but a pastor, here's what I am here to tell you about. Anxiety and worry is related to your faith. It is related to your faith. And again, I'm not making a clinical statement here. I'm saying worry has something to do with what you treasure, right? I don't know if you noticed that, but Jesus used a therefore in verse 25, which means what we worry about is based upon what we treasure, right? Because, hey, if your treasure's in heaven, therefore, don't be anxious. But if your treasure is on earth, you probably are anxious. When I talk about the trillion-dollar credit card issue, in the anxiety rates in America, they're related. It's a treasure issue, but it's also a trust issue. In verse 30, Jesus says this statement, O oh, you of little faith. O oh, you of little faith. He's saying, 
your worrying and your faith are connected. And I want to talk about a couple things quick on worry. The first is this. Worry does us no good. Worry does us no good. Right? Verse 27. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Worrying is not going to give you more time in a day or more days in a week. And, verse 34, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow's going to be anxious for itself. Guess what? You can't change it. And it takes just as much time as it does to pray, to praise, or to search the scriptures for something that can calm your soul than it does to sit there and worry. I mean, I went to school for exercise science. I always thought treadmills were stupid, but... Then I figured out there's such thing called a Stairmaster. Have you guys seen those things? Some of you probably climb those. Those are so dumb. Like, climbing stairs is bad enough, but climbing stairs that go to nowhere? <laughs> pointless. Why are we doing that? And that's what your worrying is doing. You are on the Stairmaster of life. You are putting yourself through misery, and it's taking you nowhere. Worry does us no good. But there's the second thing you need to know, that worry doesn't just do us no good. Worry doubts that God is good. Worry doubts that God is good. Because as Jesus sits on a mountainside, he is so clever to take a look out and lift his audience's eyes, and he's saying, look out, don't you see the birds? Don't you see the birds? And guess what? I take care of them. Don't you see the fields? Look at the lilies. Look at the grass. Like, they're alive. They're sustained. I provide for them. So if I'm going to take care of birds and lilies and grass, aren't you of greater value? Right? It takes me back to this Genesis 1 narrative. Like, birds were created on day five. And for whatever reason, God decided to call birds good. I don't agree. But he, he created winged animals, and he said, and he looked at his creation, and he said, it was good. Okay? And actually, on day three, he created vegetation, right? So these lilies are the grass that's growing. And he looked at it, and he said, it is good. But then, the pinnacle of God's creation, Genesis 1, Verse 31, he's created Adam and Eve, humanity, and he looks at us, you and me, created in his image, and he says, it was what? Very good. Very good. God has made very clear that we are the pinnacle of his creation. We are created in his image, and if he's going to take care of birds and grass, he can take care of you. He is faithful. He will provide in Salt Company, you can trust in the promises of God. You can trust that he is good and that he will provide for you. And note, here's what our passage says. It seems to be somewhat conditional, right? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Whoa, okay. Okay. That's confronting. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all of these things will be added to you. Well, what are all these things? You might not be thinking it, but I am, because there's this prosperity gospel that's ravaging our country and our world today that's like, hey, if you just have more faith, muster up the strength, God will give you health, wealth, prosperity. He'll give you all that you need, and that's not what Jesus is teaching here. 
when he says all these things, you know what he's talking about? Food and clothing. Hey, you seek first the kingdom of God, you will never have to worry about whether you have food to eat or clothing to wear. But we have a different standard of living we want to uphold, don't we? Leaves us discontent, wanting more, worrying. I think of Timothy's words in 1 Timothy 6. He says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. I love that. And he continues to say, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Whoa! So he's saying, godliness with contentment, hey, as long as I got food and clothing, I'm good, fam. Like, sign me up for that. Food and clothing. And there is a promise that God is going to be good on his word, that he will provide for you, that he is good, he will meet your every need. And so you might be asking, why should I trust you, Jordan? Or why should I trust you, Jesus? Why are you worth me seeking you first? Above all the material things on this earth, why should we trust him or seek him first? A couple verses that will be up on the screen for you. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Why should you trust God? Why should you seek him first? Because here's what's true. He sought you first. He didn't wait for you to clean up your act and get, you know, all the accolades and all the wealth and all the resumes to bring to his feet. Here's what he did. He stepped out of heaven, put on flesh, became a servant. He was a carpenter's son, born in a barn. And he was mocked. He was homeless. He was eventually beaten, stripped, mocked, scorned, and killed crushed by your sin. Why? So that through his finished work, through him becoming poor, you might become rich towards God. You might inherit eternal life. You might behold the prize that is God himself. This call to trust in him or to treasure him is not based upon some subjective feeling, but an objective reality, a real event, a real person, this really happened, that Jesus lived perfectly, died in your place, and didn't stay dead. He resurrected, showing that his death was sufficient. He defeated sin, death, and Satan on your behalf so that you might be restored to God. And with that, I'm like, why would I not trust God? I love Romans 8, verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Okay, God gave up his most precious possession in sending his son, Jesus Christ, to live and die for you. So why would he leave you hanging? (laughs) Right? Why would he literally die in your place but then not provide your next job opportunity? Why would he die in your place and rise again and not provide you with your next meal to eat? 
That is not the character of God. It is not. He has put forth his most precious possession in Christ to prove to you that he is trustworthy and he is good on his word. And so you want to know, how can we live faithful lives? How can we prioritize faithfulness in the material world? You could say it this way, prioritize faithfulness by treasuring God and trusting in him. Treasuring God and trusting in him. And this passage wrecked me. I want you guys to know that. Because ten and a half years ago, this was the very text that made me trust in Jesus for the first time. Matthew 6, verse 33, was what cut me to the heart for the first time in my life. I read these words, seek first the kingdom of God. And I was filled with anxiety and worry. My life was falling apart. I had chased fulfillment in every way possible. Party scene, women, possessions, affliction shirts, right? (laughs) Whatever stupid thing, I chased it and I was empty. And I was overwhelmed with worry. How am I going to graduate? What job am I going to get? Is my dad going to die from cancer? All this worry. And I come to this passage that says, seek first the kingdom of God. And I'm like, God is not first. He's probably 20th on my list. And my initial thought was, well, now if I just put him first and start to prioritize him more, then he'll accept me. And the preacher that night said, Jordan, in order for you to seek God first, here's what you need to know. He sought you first. It's not about how much you love God, but how much he loved you in the person and work of Christ. And once you understand that, seeking him first is the only reasonable response. And my life was wrecked. <laughs> like, honestly, dream career, out the door. Dreams of being wealthy, definitely out the door now that I'm in ministry, right? Standard of living, I wanted to uphold and pass on to my kids, not going to be there. But I wouldn't trade it for anything, Salt Company. Because I've been satisfied in Jesus. That can't be taken from me. No matter what happens in this life, I have satisfaction in God himself. And now I'm invited to share that with every single person I come in contact with. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. And so I want to give you three quick applications for how you can live this out. Not just today, tonight, or this week, but for the rest of your life. The first is this. Surrender your earthly desires. Right? Be willing to come to God with your wants and your worries and tell him. Actually tell him, these are the things that I have wanted more than you. These are the things that I have doubted that you might provide. Would you just be willing to talk to him about that? Come clean and say, I have settled for smaller purposes and desires. I have been far too easily satisfied. I haven't been satisfied in you because I've been chasing smaller things. Please forgive me. And then from that place, number two, satisfy yourself in God. Satisfy yourself in God. Remind yourself of the wonder of God. When appropriate, step outside and just look at creation and consider there is a God that created that who cares about you. Dwell on that. Think about where Jesus first loved you which is while you were still a sinner, you had nothing to offer him. He met you there and poured out his grace on you. He became poor that you might become rich in him. Maybe you need to memorize a scripture this week that calls to mind 
that you can be satisfied in God. And lastly, seek him first. And I mean that quite literally. Seek him first. Give him the priority in your life. When you think about what you're going to do post-graduation, what does God want for you first? Or maybe let's get a little more pointed. What does God want for you next semester or next summer? Have you sought his desires first? Or are you only caught up in yourself? Seek him first. What about the first part of your day? Seek him first. Get on your knees and pray. Open your Bible. Seek him first. What about the first day of your week? To come to a worship gathering, right? To come sit in one of these seats and sing praises to your God and fill yourself up before you go out to classes or work for the rest of the week. Seek him first. Give him the best of your time and give him the best of your treasures. And with that, I am talking about your money. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Right? When you are satisfied in God, you are willing to surrender even money to him because you're satisfied in him. And I love Hebrews 11. This is my last scripture reference. I'm sorry. We got a lot. Um, we have a picture of what this looks like. A guy by the name of Moses. You've maybe heard of him. Hebrews 11, verse 24, it says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses lived this out. He could have been in Pharaoh's family, full of wealth, but he said, no, I'm going to choose to be poor with the people of God because my reward is in heaven. That's what it looks like. And you might be saying, yeah, Jordan, well, that's Moses, right? Like, I'm no Moses. Well, it's not just Moses. There's people that you and me know that are already doing this. I think of my mom, Julie Howell, freaking saint, right? She says, you know what? I don't have a lot of money, but I have some. And I care enough about college students that I'm going to cancel my cable and internet so that I can give money so that students can go to fall retreat. That's what it looks like, right? I think of a student in our ministry who, when he considered what student leadership might look like, he said, I think I'm going to have to cut my work hours in order to be discipled and make disciples. And he did it. I think of a student I discipled several years ago who, when I first met him, Dave Ramsey fanboy, right? Like, financial guru. And two years ago, this guy says, well, I know I'm about to get engaged, and I just graduated, and I need to find a career, but I cannot get over that God wants me to go to the ends of the earth. And he gave up eight weeks of work to take the gospel across the seas. And it messed up his financial plans, but it was worth it because he was satisfied in God. And lastly, one of my friends, Adam, he had literally a full-ride scholarship to Iowa State, and he heard that there was a church plant going to Ohio State University, and he's like, why wouldn't I go? Right? There's people there just like me that don't know Jesus. Why would I not go? And he gave up a scholarship to go take the gospel to a new university center. What would it look like for us? And what might it look like for you to say, if I'm actually satisfied in Jesus, how do I show that? By putting my treasure there. And I promise you, 
God is worth it. And to every single person who's given something up to follow Jesus, you can say, he's worth it. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, you are our prize. And I confess, even when I think about heaven, God, um, I'm quick to think about things other than you. Uh, I'm quick to think of no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears. Um, I'm quick to think about the people I might see there, like my dad. I'm quick to think of other good gifts that come with heaven and miss the reality that the greatest part of heaven is that you will be there. That we will get to behold you, that we will get to join with the multitudes, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and say, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Jesus, you alone satisfy our souls. And so, God, I pray tonight that you would cut us to the heart, convict us of materialism where it's needed, satisfy us where we are discontent and help us to give our anxieties to you because you can be trusted. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.